Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. So if you want to open up your Bibles to the book of John, we will start to dig into that wonderful book and, you know, and enjoy the journey of understanding, you know, the text. Uh, I was looking into something this morning. It really didn't have anything to do with scripture. It was actually talking for more of a financial idea that so often we set a goal for ourselves that like, okay, if I have this much income or this much savings, you know, then things will be better. And it was talking about that we got to be careful in the pursuit of a certain goal, whatever the goal might be, that we don't embrace the journey to that goal. And I started thinking about that idea from even a spiritual standpoint. Um, Let's talk real simple. First off, all right, studying the book of John. Our goal is not to get to the end of the book. Our goal is to enjoy the journey and learn a lot about Jesus. And then I was even thinking about from a, a deeper spiritual standpoint. So often as Christians, we always talk about our goal is is eternity with God, okay? And we always talk about we have that hope for the future, the future, the future, the future. That's true. But we're living in the kingdom of God right now. We need to embrace that right now. And really the journey of serving God, even suffering for God, teaching people about God, sacrificing for him, all of that is what we should embrace. Don't always just look forward to the goal but embrace the journey to that goal. So that was my spiritual thought for myself this morning, that Cliff, you need to embrace life in serving God right now as opposed to just thinking about those future you know, goals. And even as we look in um, John chapter 10 and 11 this morning, as he talks about the resurrection and all of that, yes, we look forward to that future resurrection, but we need to live resurrected or new lives right now, as Paul would say, in Romans chapter 6. That's something I thought I had this morning. All right, so into the book of John. The book of John is written to Christians toward the end of the first century to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants them to believe this fact. But it's more than just believing a fact. Belief in the gospel of John would also involve what? Is it just the acceptance of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, or is there more to it? What is that? Okay, faith, what else? Faith, obeying commandments, works, living form, all that. See, belief is not just the mental acceptance that Jesus is the Son of God, at least how John is using this. And we need to make sure we're careful that usage always determines meanings of words. John, the way he uses belief is like different than James, okay? John is using belief as kind of an all-encompassing system. And that's usually what we mean, at least in scriptural standpoint, when we go, are you a believer? We don't mean, do you believe in that Jesus is real? There's a lot of people out there that are living, you know, com- lives in complete opposition to the will of God who would say they believe, quote, in Jesus. But there's a difference then between that mental acceptance that Jesus really existed or even that he's the son of God and actually allowing that belief to shape your life and being a believer. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, it's who you are. I like that idea. It's our identity. It's our identity. It's, so it's not just something I even do, but it's something that I am. That belief in Jesus encompasses every aspect of my life. It is a lifestyle, you know, that idea. Very true. So John writes this book, um, laying out all the different signs that Jesus did, bringing witness after witness, attesting to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. 
and he wants us to come to that conclusion because when you become a believer, you have life in his name. And life, again, it's eternal life, future, but it's also we're living right now. You're not really living unless you know Jesus Christ. Because when you know Jesus, this life gets meaning. There's purpose to it. Um, sociologists will tell you that the keys to having a, a happy life are, oh, I forgot all of them. It was, one of them was autonomy, mastery, and a sense of purpose. God left us out there to serve him in many different ways. That's that autonomy. Mastery, we can study God's word and learn how to better serve him each and every day. Sense of purpose. Jesus gives our life purpose and meaning. We're not just floundering through life wondering. We have ambition, we have drive, we have goals based upon Jesus Christ. Well, as we've been going through the book, we've been in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry. He hasn't gone to the cross, and now he's engaging in these different dialogues. Specifically, um, this one kind of set the stage with a dialogue that happened between Jesus and the Pharisees because he did a miracle that they didn't like. What was that miracle? Yeah, he healed, back it up there, the blind man, right? He heals the blind man. And the miracle is pretty unique. It involves spitting in mud and rubbing in the guy's eyes. Um, I don't usually do that at hospital visits. It doesn't go over very well. But Jesus healed this blind man. And that's an awesome miracle. But the Pharisees had a problem with that because they say that, well, you did it on the Sabbath day, and that makes you a sinner. And then others were saying, well, if he's a sinner, why would he be able to heal? And then there was this, all this problem. And then Jesus argues with them, and then he comes into this um, teaching about him being the good shepherd. And the key idea between Jesus being the good shepherd is what? What would you say is his point? Yeah, that's it. He, he, um, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know the shepherd. And with that too, um, Jesus then knows the sheep. There's a relationship there. It's deeper than just a, you know, uh, a cow herder maybe. This is more intimate kind of idea. He's also the doorway into the sheepfold and into the place where it's safe and all of that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was actually an article I wrote 10 years ago and I just rebranded it, so I stuck one past you guys. All right. It happens. But yeah, thank you. Uh, we had an article about that last week because it related to what we were talking about, you know, these last couple weeks. All right, well, now we move on to a section where Jesus is come defending who he is in John chapter 10, verse 22, the Feast of Dedication is going on, and Jesus talks about how no one's going to snatch them out of his hand because he and the Father are one. Um, I'm going to read verse 26, and we'll pick up there. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. By the way, that's what it means to believe. That is a summation of the Christian life right there. You hear his voice. He knows us. We follow him. Isn't that it? That's, that's Christianity. We know Jesus. We hear him. He knows us. We follow him. Fast forward to year 2021. That's crazy to say, which I saw something online, and it said that um, if you were born in 1980, the distance between 2021 to 1980 is the same from 1980 to 1939. And I was like, that just really blew my mind, that idea, because that seems so long ago. For some of you, you were around back then. But... Um, that was a long time ago. All right, we'll see. See? Crazy perspective, huh? All right. But yeah, it's weird how numbers work, right? How it just blows your mind, some of that kind of stuff. 
like I'm, I'm older than my dad was when I thought my dad was old. I mean, it's just that kind of weird stuff like that. Um, so Jesus hears his good shepherd. He lays his teaching out, and he tells us that we need to follow him. And because, verse 28, I, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There is security in the relationship with Jesus Christ. No one's going to come grab you and take you from it because our shepherd protects us. Okay? We are safe in Jesus Christ. Now, if you leave the shepherd, yeah, you're no longer safe. That's obvious, you know, that kind of idea. If the sheep says, sorry, shepherd, I'm not following you, and wanders out into the wilderness and gets eaten by a coyote, that happens. But as long as you are following the voice of the good shepherd, he keeps you safe. So in a world of turmoil, a world of chaos, a world of fear, we have protection from losing that eternal life in Jesus Christ if we follow him as that shepherd. Why? My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand, and I and the father are one. So he lays this out, and you could imagine a lot of the people being, what do you mean that I'm safe if I follow you, Jesus? Well, what do you mean by that? How do you give me eternal life? How are you going to protect me in that? He goes, because the Father is what gave me my sheep. And my Father is greater than everything. No one can take anything from the Father. And I and the Father are one. I like that illustration there because, you know, that idea of you have a, a greater father figure behind you is something we even use in, in, in our human thinking, but then Jesus pulls it to the next level and says, my father has my back. My father gave me these sheep. My father is greater than all, and I and him are one. And Jewish people had no problem with God protecting them. They had a familiarity with that. They understood that. I mean, their whole history is about God preserving the Israelite people. But now Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Thoughts or comments up to verse 30. All right, well, how do you think they responded? They repented of their sins and got baptized that day. No, verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. I love how it says, again. I just think that's kind of funny. You know, again. This is what they do. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? I like this because he goes, so they pick up rocks like, let's kill him. And he goes, hold up here. I did a lot of good things. Which one of them are you stoning me for? Because are they going to say, we're stoning you for helping blind people? I mean, really? We're stoning you for, for helping a paralyzed man. Really? You're going to be that guy? I mean, no one's going to do that. That's kind of the argument. And they, the Jews answered him, for a good work we don't stone you. We're not mad about your good works, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, Jesus is making himself out to be God. Because he is. They don't like that statement. But now Jesus is going to show something to them to try to argue against their line of thinking, though. And it's a strange argument, so we'll kind of discuss it here a bit. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Verse 37, if I do not believe the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. We'll talk about this verse 34 in a second. General idea here when you study scripture. If there's a verse, a quote that just seems odd to you, that you can't wrap your mind around, sometimes that's okay, dig into it, you'll, you'll maybe find an answer. However, we can get the gist and the application and the conclusion of the passage without understanding the argument. Jesus' conclusion is kind of verse 37. If I'm doing the works of the Father, believe in me. Because the Father's only going to work through his Son. There's oneness, there's unity. So therefore, you need to believe in me. That's the idea. Jesus' argument is, you've seen what the Father is doing to me, through me, and I'm telling you I'm his Son. You should believe it because the evidence is there, right? The evidence is there that Jesus is the Son of God. And the whole reason for that is that you can know, verse 38, that the Father is in me and I in the Father. That's unity. That's oneness. You cannot separate Jesus from the Father. And so often people sometimes do that. They try to categorize them away from each other. Like, well, I follow Jesus, but I don't follow the Father. No. You can't follow one without the other because they are working in complete and utter agreement. All right, now verse 34, does anybody have a reference to a scripture passage there to try to make um, that sense of that one? What is it? All right, read it for us there, Tom. You weren't there? Okay. Anybody have it? Or I'll turn over there. Okay. So now that's a little bit of a challenge. And I'm not going to get into the Psalms, you know, just yet this idea. But... Because we have to argue about who's he talking to, what is the audience here, because in verse 1, he's standing in the midst of his own congregation, in the midst of the rulers. Is he talking to divine beings? Is he talking to Israel? Is he talking to all of that? However, Jesus is taking a verse that uses the word God in a plural form. And he says, look, you don't have a problem with that verse, do you? Which, by the way... The word God in and of itself, sometimes we overthink. Because the more I've been studying, even in the Old Testament, ancient man and ancient Israel, a lot of times even looked at uh, what we would call angels, demons, and all that as gods. Because they are in the divine realm, not in the earthly realm. Which, that's a whole other conversation. Um, and then you have the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. And then you have like in Job, the divine council that meets in the throne room of God. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? There's stuff out there we don't understand. However, Jesus does take a verse from the Old Testament that uses the word God in a plural form, and he's saying, look, you guys quote that psalm and sing it all the time. We'll talk, we don't have to talk about what it's talking about, but Jesus' point is, look, if there's a verse there that says God's, why are you freaking out? Why, why does that bother you? So if I'm God and the Father's God, that shouldn't freak you out. There's a possibility for that even in your own theology is kind of his argument. In their own theology, in their own religious practices, there's room for 
multiple gods. Now you might be going, that sounds wrong. Well, is Jesus God? Yes. Is the Father God? Yes. Therefore, that can be considered by argumentation standpoint here, multiple gods. Yes, he and the Father are one, so they're the one God, but you understand his argument that he's making. But he doesn't hang his hat so much on that one. He, he says it, and then he goes, and look, by the way, you say I'm blaspheming, prove it. Because all the works, all the evidence, everything I've done show that I and the Father are one. So the two gods are still one God. That's kind of the idea there. Yes, Karen. Yeah, and um, I, I could see that. I, I don't know 100% because the footnotes and stuff like that are put there, obviously, to try to give us guiding, guidance in our study. I, I haven't dug into Psalm 82 enough to definitively say that, but that does make sense. Um, but I, Jesus isn't trying to deal with that scripture here. All he's saying is, look, you have verses that say this. Why do you have a problem with me saying I'm God? You shouldn't have a problem with it. And what's really cool about the Old Testament is there's passages that at the time they might have an immediate context, but then later you'll get into like the Gospels and Jesus and the apostles. They use it and they pull out something that we didn't see there. They have that ability. Holy Spirit inspired them. At the end of the book of Luke, Jesus told his apostles everything that was written in the Psalms concerning him. So we might not understand what was written in the Psalms concerning Jesus, but they do, and that kind of idea here. Yes. Yeah, I, I wish we could get into that more. What about idol gods? Are they real gods? Okay, but if they are related to demonic forces, would those be gods of people? I mean, there's a whole other conversation there about how the words are used. Because, um, like, you have Psalms that say he's a great king above all gods. So maybe there's, there's one God who created all things and is greater, and there's a lot of lesser beings out there. Call them gods, call them demons, call them angels, call them whatever you want. The one God is overall. So, I mean, uh, oh, absolutely. He shut down. And, and that's the whole, um, throughout the Old Testament is God is greater than any other God you can think of and that kind of thing. All right, well, let's, we don't want to get into all of that because that, that is a conversation that will never be solved. Um, but as we go down here, verse 39, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. I always wondered, this has always been cool to me, how that happened. Did he, like, dematerialize? You know what I mean? I don't know. Or did he just, I don't know, kung fu Jesus and move him out of the way? I, I don't know. But they couldn't grab him. I think he, in his supernatural abilities, was able to make that happen. I just, I don't know. Sometimes the things that it doesn't say are, are always curious to me. How did Jesus elude their grasp? Don't know. Uh, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. So now he goes out into the wilderness where John the Baptist had been, where John the Baptist was first baptizing. Many people come to him, and I like this too because, remember, many people would come to John the Baptist in the wilderness, and John would preach to them. And now many people are coming to Jesus in the same way, saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man is true. Many believed in him there. You kind of see the transition from John's ministry to Jesus's here. But their, their statement that they make is, John the Baptist told us a bunch of stuff about the coming Messiah. 
And John didn't have the ability to do signs like, like Jesus did, but yet everything John said has come true. And because of that, many believed in him there. Because of the testimony being fulfilled, the prophecies being fulfilled and all that, the people's belief is, is solidified. It's, it's growing because they're seeing that it's all coming together. When you see God's hand working, it makes your faith stronger. I mean, all of us probably have things in our life where we'll look back in, in retrospect and we'll go, and my wife's really good at kind of pointing some of these things out when I whine and complain or that things aren't going the way I want them to. Um, she, um, and then you look at this event over here, started this event, started this event, started this event, started this event, that makes Cliff Saber a preacher today. And you're like, God had to be working in that. And we probably do that in our own life of how God has worked things and it makes you grow in your faith. They're here and they're seeing that, wait, John couldn't even do signs, but yet John said this and now it's coming true and you can perform signs. It strengthened their faith and it caused them to believe. All right, questions or comments up through verse 42. Yeah, Don, we're a weird bunch. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, no. Yeah, and... Here, yeah, like you said, some of the, would you consider outsiders rejected, not those that were the ones you would think are the ones that come to him. What's that? The crunchy crowd? Yeah. If you don't get the terminology, Don will explain to you what it means to be granola. All right. Um, they live in like Ashland, Oregon, that kind of thing. Um, but all right, so moving on to chapter 11 then. It says, now there was, so we have a, a break, okay? Now there was a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany. Jesus spent time in Bethany often. We know that um, even prior to like his um, crucifixion and that kind of idea. So Jesus, there's a certain man named Lazarus who lived in Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the feet with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother was Lazarus. So the sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, Behold, he whom you love is sick. This is a family that Jesus is very close to. Um, and these two sisters, Mary and Martha, they also have a brother named Lazarus. They were part of Jesus' ministry team in some way, you know, that kind of thing. They were active in following him. They, were, they provided him a place to stay, all of that. So these two ladies have a brother named Lazarus, and Lazarus is sick. So they send word to Jesus. So they send a messenger or whatever to get to him to tell him, Lord, he whom you love is sick. And again, I know that might not, that's odd terminology to us today, the way we use the word love. Um, but Jesus is close to Lazarus. He's his friend. He, they have a close companionship, that kind of idea. And it's, it wouldn't be odd to use that terminology. Um, it'd be like me um, sending a message to someone saying, man, you're a good friend, you're a good buddy, that one you're really close to, that kind of idea. Um, when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. He hears this statement, Lazarus is sick, and Jesus goes, look, this isn't going to end in death, but it's going to end in something glorious. And what's going to happen with this, it's going to end up with the Son of God being glorified by it. Now, that's an odd way of handling this, of course. If someone came to me and said, hey, can you pray for my brother? He's sick. 
And I said, don't worry, it's not going to end in death, but it's going to end up glorifying God. You're going to be like, what are you talking about? You know, but we know, can we read ahead what this is actually going to happen? Jesus is telling him, stay tuned, because guess what's going to happen next? And that's kind of throughout the Gospel of John. You remember, it's here's a sign, but there's more. Here's a sign, but wait, there's more. Jesus goes, oh, sickness and death, wait. Just wait and see the glorification that's going to happen. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her, si- and her sister and Lazarus. So there's a, a family close relationship there. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there? So he first off, he waits two days to leave. Um, he doesn't do it immediately, which may be letting some time pass because of the glorification that's going to happen. But he lets some time pass. Then he tells his disciples, hey, let's go there. And the disciples say what? Don't go. Why, why would you go there? You, you just got kicked out of town. They tried to kill you. There. One time I got kicked out of the town of Dinuba. Um, true story. Um, when I first moved to Visalia years ago because I wanted to be around Zinni, the first job I could find was being one of those annoying people that walk around with stuff that they're selling. And um, so I went to like Dinuba to try to just sell a bunch of junk. Um, and I literally got told that this wasn't allowed. I needed to leave Dinuba. I got chased out of a lot of places. There was a guy at a trophy shop in Selma that I thought was going to hit me with a trophy. Um, but anyway, so Jesus got kicked out of Judea. And it happens to preachers. We get kicked out of places. But now he says, we're going to go back. And the disciples say, why would you go there? They tried to kill us. And then Jesus says this. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Typical Jesus form. He wants them to think a little bit deeper. He goes, day the day is long. You never know what's going to happen kind of idea. However, people don't stumble in the daytime because they see the light. But if you walk in the night, you stumble because the light is not in him. They are thinking wrong. And they're stumbling at this idea. So if Jesus tells them, go to Judea, all they're hearing is danger. That's a stumbling block to them. It's a stumbling block to them because they can't see the big picture. Let's maybe think of a modern equivalent. Maybe if I said, um, hey, um, we're going to go out um, to this apartment complex across the way, and we're going to hand flyers to every kid and invite them to vacation Bible school. And you would go, well, why would you do that? That would be weird and awkward, and, and what if someone doesn't like that, and it's hot outside, and, and, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. You don't see the big picture. We're going to sacrifice this little bit, it's not even a real sacrifice, but for the fact of maybe inviting a kid to vacation Bible school, there's a better benefit there. All they're seeing is, well, that's a problem. Why would you go to Judea? Jesus goes, look, you're stumbling because you're not in the light. You need to see things clearly. You need to be enlightened a little bit to the greater purpose. Verse 11, then he said, and after that, he said to them, "Um, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. 
Now, Jesus is talking about death here, but they don't hear that. Because why would Jesus go if Lazarus is asleep? Why is that a big deal? The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. He picks on these poor disciples a little bit. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but I mean, he'll say something to get them to think. And when they don't think, he has to correct them. Here he says, I'm just going to go there because he's sleeping. They go, why would you go if he's sleeping? He's going to wake up. It's not a big deal. It's not, don't worry if he's asleep. But they didn't get it. He's speaking of death. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. It's like he slows it down. Let me tell you what I mean. He is dead. Okay, he tells them plainly just in case they didn't get it. But why do you think he used the term sleep to talk about death? Temporary. One day you're going to wake up. Paul would use the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, right? Um, we are not all asleep, but we will all be changed. You know that idea? We will wake up, that idea. Um, here he says, look, he is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. There's a lot here. So he goes, look, I'm glad that I wasn't there. Your human reaction, why would you not want to be there? You'd want to be there if your friend is dying, especially if you have magical powers. We would think you'd want to be there and try to help, you know, heal him so he doesn't die. This is all designed to be intentionally provocative. But Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that, what? You may believe. Wait a second. Where is there a verse in the Gospel of John where he says that same line? John 20, 20 or 30 and 31. Many other signs Jesus wrote or Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe. Key verse of the book is you may believe. Here's a precursor to it in verse 15 of John chapter 11. Everything Jesus did is designed to get us to believe, or at least everything John records. So you ask the question, why did John leave out some things and put in other things? Why? Because these ones are designed intentionally to get us to believe. You know, what Jesus did casually around a campfire on a Tuesday might not help us believe, so that's not in there. What Jesus did when he was seven years old, man, don't we wish we knew what was his childhood like? Doesn't help you believe, so it's not there. Yeah, Jim, when there's an opportunity to do good right then or teach or lead people to Jesus, do it right then. And yeah, I think you're right. He teaches that to his disciples often. And that's a hard lesson for us because I, I like planning things. I like routines. And my biggest stress is when things goes against what I already planned. And you know what? There might be something more important. Well, there is tons of things more important than Cliff Sabro's vacation plans or going out to eat plans or watching TV and taking a nap plan, right? There's more important things than that. And instead of whining, grumbling, or being bitter about it, I should embrace that opportunity to serve God. So he says, we're going to go then to him. Verse 16, therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, what does Didymus mean? Twin, right? Yeah. 
And John Couch always used to like to tell me how much he liked Thomas there because he was a twin. Because John, our former associate minister, is a twin. But yeah, Thomas, who was called Didymus, um, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. I like Thomas. You know what I mean? Which we always give Thomas sometimes a bad rap. No, he's one, willing to die Thomas right here. He's like gung-ho, right? I'm going to go on in and let's die with him. He's like, hoorah, here we go. So even though they're going to Jerusalem or Judea, even though they think they might die there because they tried to stone Jesus to death when he is, Thomas is like, bring it, right? He's like, let's go so we might die with him. And I just love the caricatures of all these people because among the disciples, you have various different attitudes. You have some guys over here going, uh-uh, we're not going to go into Judea. And Thomas is like, let's do it. I like that. But anyway, so he said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days, which, by the way, that means the disciples thought they were going to die when they went there, okay? Um, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. So now they're heading toward Bethany. There's a lot of people there to comfort this family over the loss of their loved ones. We, we don't make a big deal about funerals, especially in the West Coast even. We're different than the East Coast in how we do funerals. Um, but a funeral in that culture was a multiple day event that involved mourning and wailing and crying and and it was a big deal. It, it, I mean, huge event to when someone dies. And you're really, I mean, especially in a culture where we're more in tune to death, we like to distance ourselves from it a lot. They really kind of embraced it. I don't want to say celebrated it, but they, they experienced it through the process here of mourning and the funeral and all these people there. So it was a big deal. And Jesus shows up. And Martha heard that Jesus was coming, so she kind of goes out. I picture her going to, like, the gate, you know, of the courtyard or whatever of the house and meets him there. Mary, on the other hand, stays inside. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Like, first off, they sent message a couple days prior, too, you remember, and, and it took time to get there. So she understood, look, if you would have made it, he wouldn't have died. However, she says, even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. So she still has this message of hope. Look, I, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. Which, think about this huge statement of faith here. First off, this is from a woman in, in, in the ministry of Jesus. So often people have this weird idea that the Bible is, anti-women or, you know, oppressive, and it doesn't elevate them. The disciples are like, well, we don't want to go there. We might die. And here Martha is saying, hey, I know that you would have been here. He wouldn't even have died. What a huge statement of faith in this woman's life, okay? Um, she's making a huge statement here. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Wow. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She goes, I know. Let's stop here for a second. 
They're in a culture where a lot of people didn't. Remember, the Sadducees didn't even believe in an afterlife. And yet, she has an understanding not only that Jesus could save people from death, that there's going to be a resurrection one day. This woman's like a theologian, okay? She's got a good grasp on things that a lot of these guys that were even closest to Jesus didn't always understand. And how she came to that point, I don't know. Since Jesus was close to this family, I imagine there was a lot of dialogue and study and talking about these things, and, and she got it. She goes, I know that he'll raise again on the last day. That's a huge statement in and of itself. I know that Jesus is going to prove that she, he can raise right now, but the fact that she believes in a resurrection on the last day, that's what we believe too, that one day the dead will rise, right? We believe that. She believed that. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. One of the most powerful statements of all of scripture, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the source of it. If you want to raise from the dead, if you want to have eternal life, it is found in Jesus to those who believe in him. Remember, that's his whole point of the book is believing in Jesus. You, If you believe in him, you will live even if you die. I know on Wednesday night in our Bible class, we talked about what that is like. You know, we don't know and all those kinds of things. Here's what it is. You will live. How that works, where that happens, and all that in the grand scheme of things isn't that big. But the fact that you will live even if you die is huge. That's a promise that no one else can make except Jesus. Verse 26 and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Then he asks, do you believe this? So it's not only just believing in him, but it's living in him. Like we talked about, belief is a lifestyle. It's living in Jesus. If you're in his internal kingdom now, when you die, you will continue to be in that eternal kingdom. He says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. You know, we always talk about Peter's confession. In Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And some say, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And Jesus said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Martha made this confession here. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Martha made, we need to preach more about Martha. She rocks. She um, confesses him as Lord. She believes in him. She believes in the resurrection. When he asked, do you believe this? She said, yes. There's a lot of people that Jesus asked, do you believe? And they said, no. But Martha said, yes. Questions or comments? That is very true. Yeah, because so often, as Don said, that we have a tendency to blame God and say, you could have fixed this. And Jesus shows her, yeah, there's going to be an immediate fixing, you might say, here, but shows her to look forward to something even greater than that, that if you believe, you will never die. Yes. Yeah, and part of that, and also just the way life operates, people are born, 
people die. But if you're in Christ, death isn't the end. You will live even if you die. That is why, that, I mean, that's a big reason we follow Jesus. I mean, we, we understand that there's a, something even beyond this existence. Yeah, Karen. It really is when you think about it. I remember I stole that illustration up here years ago with that rope and talking about that. But if you look at a timeline of our existence, which um, if that means we never die, that means forever existence into the great beyond. The tiny hundred years that we live here in this life, after a million years in glory, you think we'll care? I mean... I can't even remember what my kindergarten teacher looked like. In my mind, her head was shaped like an oval, and I know that's not true, okay? But, um, I mean, do you think about that? And then, in eternity, this existence is so small. There's so, it's just, death is just the beginning into something forever. We're going to get to be in that paradise of God. Yeah. Yeah. I th- we like to be in control. Yeah. We, we like to control everything. Yeah, we want to control the time frame. We want to control life. We want to control death. And having to give that up to, to God is humbling. Like you said, our ego. Our ego sometimes won't let us let go. And that is, that is very true. Yes, pray that God's will be done and not our own. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.